I'm going to put the little red dot on this time. And I'm going to read Hebrews, the 12th chapter again. Wherefore seeing we, that's all of us in Christ, we are surrounded on every side. We are completely surrounded with the greatest testimonies. And that goes back to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. With so great a cloud of those that gave such testimony of Christ, let us lay aside every weight and that sin which will so easily entangle us and trip us up so that we're no longer going forward in the race, but we fall down experientially. The sin which does so easily entangle us and let us run with patience the race that is put before us, that particular path that God has chosen for each of us in Proverbs 4 and verse 18, and in Proverbs 3 and verse 5, let's trust in the Lord with all of our heart, with every single thought, trust in the Lord. Because everything that he does on this path is to reduce us down to trusting him for everything. It has nothing to do with how we feel at all. It has nothing to do with emotions. And I may feel good one day and not so good the next. I may feel good for one hour and then not the next. But neither of those are the indicator of who I should be trusting in. We lay aside every weight. And lay it aside. And let us see him that he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is set down there, and so we're to consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Here is, lest you be wearied, lest you get worn out and begin to faint in your minds, to turn away from Christ and turn to your feelings. And whether they're good or whether they're bad, the emotions are no indicator of a proper reality. They're just not. Because you and me in that place have not resisted unto blood. It's nothing to do with us even striving against sin. Striving against knowing what we should do, what we shouldn't do. And even when we don't do it, should we strive against it? How about just 1 John 1, 9, confess it? How about just confessing it and getting right back into a place of trusting him and not our emotions and not our own thoughts? Why? Because this is what we forget on this path. Here's what we forget in 12, 5. You have forgotten. Why do we get weary? Why do we faint? Why? Why? Because we don't look away from all that distracts. And when I look at that that can distract me, it's just an indication that I have forgotten. I have forgotten. It's so easy for us to do that. I've forgotten the exhortation, the edification, that strong, gracious, unconditional love that is constantly edifying us and speaking to us and speaking, and he speaks to our faith dependence on him. My son, so he speaks unto you as children. Do children always listen? Do children always listen to their parents? My son, 
Don't lightly esteem the chastening of the Lord. And don't faint when you are lovingly, chastisingly rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, remember, this is not punishment. This is chastisement. And the fact that you're being chastised is the proof of God's love for you as his son and his daughter. And it and our thoughts apart from Christ, which become a huge distraction and a means of us forgetting these edifying truths. They don't have anything to do with our thoughts or our emotions. But we can forget. And when we forget, when we forget that part, the huge part of our growth in grace and knowledge in 2 Peter 3 in verse 18 has to do with loving chastisement. Because if you're without chastisement, and we never will be because we are all the children of God by faith dependence in Christ Jesus in Galatians 3 in verse 26. So it says, but if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers. You're a partaker. The fact that we partake and have partaken of that nature that has been made ours through Christ in 2 Peter 1 and verse 4, that's our position. But how are we going to experience it without chastisement or loving correction to get us from our thoughts, our emotions, and get us into a proper place of sonship? A proper place. So, but if you're not going to be a partaker of that, then are you bastards and not sons? And a bastard is the product of an illegitimate relationship. So we get distracted, and when we forget Christ, we get into relationships with other things. Worries, doubts, fears. We get overwhelmed with these things. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, our natural parents, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Sometimes we didn't feel like it, but we did so because we knew better. Will we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and experience life? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he for our profit. He for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness, which has nothing to do with our thoughts, has nothing to do with our emotions at all. Now, no chastening, listen, for the present, for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby which are in that training process. Wherefore, because of this, lift up the hands that hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Then you'll be able to follow peace 
with all men, and holiness, without which no man will see the Lord. But we need to constantly and continuously look away from all that would distract and look unto Jesus and we're to do it quickly and diligently because if we don't, any man can cause us, if Christ is not our cause, can cause us to fail of the grace of God. And that can be ourselves. Fail of the grace of God. Lest any root, and notice that, any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and there thereby many, many may be defiled. If we were going to title, if I was going to title this particular message, and I usually don't do so, it would be the fact that sin is only learnt, and we can only learn it in God's presence. That's part of our training, our chastening. We can, we can only learn it in His presence. It is. And the difference between learning sin in God's presence and by falling into it is very great. It's a huge thing. And we may feel, and at times we do, we may feel sin very deeply. We may, especially when we commit it. But that never gives you and I God's sense of what sin is. Never does. Never does. The cross, and here's the key, and this is what we want to read next. The cross of Christ is the measure of sin in the sight of God. Two things we can never know properly outside of his presence. Sin and grace. Sin and grace. We may hate it in all of its hideous forms. We may hate it, but it's still, there's still the revelation of it has to do with this, and I'm going to read this, and then we'll just continue here, and then we're going to turn to Galatians, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it, in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 says this, but God forbid that I should glory. Sometimes we go, the flesh glories in, in the fact that it's being chastened in terms of reaction. But God forbids that I should glory. He does. Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen. By whom the world is crucified unto me. Why are we in training? Why does he chase, lovingly correct and chasten us? Because there's, they, there's things in us that don't have to do with our position that have entered into our experience. And usually there's something of the world. And it's the world and these things of the world that we get, we, when we forget and get distracted, and the world is a huge, can be a huge distraction to the Christian. And it can even be a means of trying to escape the chastisement. But where are we going to go in Psalm 139, 7 to 13? Where are we going to go from his presence? If I make my bed in hell experientially, is he there? Will he ever leave me? Nor forsake me in Hebrews 13, 5? No, never. If, if, I, if I have my mountaintop experience in the heavens, he's right there also. So no matter how I feel, does that change the fact of his presence? Never does. But something needs to be changed in us, and that's the distraction or the means of us forgetting, forgetting. And it's so easy to do. 
It's so easy to do. So the whole world is crucified unto me. He's bringing in that constant reality. And then what? I into the world. So the Christian, through a training process, through the word, in the separating process in Hebrews 4.12, so that we can take the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6 and verse 17, because we are, our feet are already shod with the peace of, of God. There's no question about it. That means we have the peace of God and the God of peace. We have God's peace, but we have the God of peace who's our Father in John 20 and verse 17. That's who he is towards us. But so he crucifies the world to us. We get, we get, he has to make us helpless and hopeless and sick of the whole world system that's on its way to passing away in 1 John 2 and verse 17 and in Revelations 10 and verse 6. It is passing away. Then he begins to work on us as an individual. It doesn't seem like I was doing anything wrong. It didn't seem like I, I was entering into lust of any kind or failing in any particular area. Didn't, I, I, I can't do that. But then he's crucifying the world, but then what does it say? An eye into the world. He begins to crucify the cross. He works the cross in to separate even the things that we are completely ignorant of and that even ignorance can be a huge distraction and a danger unless dealt with. And then I into the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision means anything, amounts to anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature, a new creation. He's made all things new in Revelations 21 and 5 and 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. He's made all things new, and out of a new creation comes what? A new creature, and that's you and I in Christ. But he's working that into us, but he has to work out. He has to constantly work out. And he's very, he's very, very patient with us. Because in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4, love suffers long. It's very, God is very patient with us. We are, we get extremely impatient. We even get impatient with, with ourselves, with others, and with God. But God is very, very very patient, and he has to teach us. While he is working out of us, that that doesn't belong in our experience, the forgetting, when we lean to our emotions, we need to constantly understand. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, our walk here on this earth has nothing to do with sight or feelings or emotions. That's not a single thing, and we can't learn that enough. What we are learning and what we need to learn in God's school of affliction, the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. It is his love that chastens and afflicts us to bring us back to a place of absolute dependence so he can grace us out with who he's made us to be. And nothing can replace him. He has removed all distance from us and God. Listen, he has, positionally. Now he has to work that in experientially. And the way that he does it is through the preaching and teaching of the cross that's crucified the old in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 16 and brought in a brand new creature out of a brand new creation because he's made all things new. He's made them new. And so 
The fact of the matter is, the cross then, the cross of Christ is the measure of sin in God's sight. He's the only one. There's two things we will never, we can never know apart from being in his presence. What sin is and what his love is. And, they, and those things need to be dealt with. And he does that in love to us. And so we know this in, in Romans 14 and verse 22. Happy is the man that condemns not himself and the thing that he allows. Why? Because in Romans 8, 1, is there any condemnation or guilt towards us? In, no. Happy is the man that condemns not himself and the things that he allows, and that thing that he allows. And he that doubts, doubts. What would cause us to doubt? Would it be our own thoughts? Would it be our own emotions? We could even do it with good emotions. We doubt that we need him because we feel good and everything's great. But he works it in. What he works in is when, when we're down. Because those that are humbled, what does he do? 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourself. God is lovingly humbling you and I. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. Something you can't do yourself. He puts us, he, he puts us in circumstances and situations that uh, to get out of it, only he can do it. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Then you'll cast all your care upon him and you realize, you will realize, without a doubt, you will realize that he does care for you. Otherwise, you have an adversary who wants to swallow you, slaughter you, and swallow you down whole with thoughts and emotions that don't have a single thing to do with who you are in Christ and further, furthermore, who Christ is in you. So, whatever the sin is, whether it's great or small, and some men make difference, differences of sins, and you'll see it in Romans 1, 18 to 32, the men make differences and categorize sin, but one sin is just as hideous and monstrous and evil as a, as a million in God's sight. But that is the distance in which sin is from him. But in the cross, that he's working in us experientially. That is the distance that it is removed and been paid for and we're reconciled. And only there do you and I know personally and can measure sin as it, as it what? Pains, brings pain into my consciousness. And what does it do? Does it, does it, is it that that deforms me in the sight of God? Or have I been formed in him brand new? And is that reality based upon my emotions? Is it? The fact of the matter is, it doesn't have a single thing to do with it as we read in the scriptures here. We read it. And we can see it. So what happens then? Then what happens in our growth? In our growth. I get a sense of sin which no amount of personal failure could ever give me. Did, do we understand that? There's nothing like being in God's presence. I don't know sin unless I'm in his presence. Right? I don't. 
I don't know it. And no amount of my own personal failure or guilt or bad thoughts or emotions can never measure it. Never. Fact of the matter is, all my sins dealt with in my position in Christ. But how do I measure it? I measure it through the cross. I don't measure it through my own feelings, my own thoughts. I don't do that. So, but again, there will never be any excusing sin. There's no toleration of it. There can't be. Now remember, Romans 14, 22, happy is the man that condemns not himself and the thing that he allows. Right? And he that doubts is what? Damned if he eat. Did you ever feel that way? Did you, is that your feelings? He that doubts is damned if he eat because he eats not of what? Dependence, constant lesson we're constantly learning. He that doubts is damned if he eat because he eats not of faith. Whatsoever is not of faith, dependence is what? It's sin. That's the indicator? I can know personal sin and all its effects? No, the greatest way to know it and experience it and having it done away with is, is through the cross of Jesus Christ that we read in Galatians 6 and verse 14. It doesn't matter. The measure of it all, measure of it all has been dealt with by, by Jesus Christ. And we, and we need to know this and learn this, but we do, what, what, what is he constantly teaching us? Now remember, remember we read Hebrews 12, 1. Wherefore lay aside every what? Wait, what does the wait reveal? That reveals the weakness. It reveals the circumstance, the situation. doesn't matter. I can't handle it. <laughs> Help me, God. <laughs> Help me. Why am I feeling this way? Why am I going through this? Well, should you think that a trial is some kind of a strange thing? Knowing in Philippians 1, 28 and 29, and 1 Peter 4 and verse 12, why do you think it's strange that a fiery trial is to try you? Is, would God ever tempt us to sin in James 1, 12 and 13? Of course not. But he, what does he do? He tries our faith dependence for everything. He has to take away every, listen to this one, to take away every single object that I become obsessed with that's not the object, my one and only object, Jesus Christ. Because in Matthew 6 and verse 22, if your eye be single, one object, Christ, in every single circumstance and situation, I don't care for us being the dot, God being the circle, doesn't matter the circumstance or the situation, matters not, it doesn't matter. Because Christ is in us. He's in us to never leave us or forsake us with a triple salutation in the original in Hebrews 13. In verse 5, the ant brings it out. I will never, no, never, no, never in any other way ever leave you nor forsake you. But what forsakes us is when, what, what the forsaking that we experience is when we forget him, get distracted, and now it's other objects. And we soon forget him and there's no need even to be occupied with him. No wonder Jesus said in Luke 19, 13, occupy with me till I come. 
And that means even in a trial. Occupy, be occupied with him until he come and lift you out. Because in due time, he will set you in due time. 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Due time is his, his, provi- his timing is as important as his provision. He knows what he's doing. Love that God has for us that's unconditional, we don't condition it by anything, flows through wisdom. And he gives us wisdom. Just ask in James 1.5, if you lack wisdom, let ask of God. Ask of God and he'll give it to you. He'll, he'll tell you when, where, and how to constantly do what? Depend upon him. That's the thing that he's constantly trying us. And when, like Job in his trial, he said in Job 23 and verse 10, if you think you have some trials, you better turn to the book of Job and thank God for where you are, no matter what it is, that you will come forth as gold. When he tries me, I will come forth as gold. Knowing that the trying of your faith is more precious than gold, way more, in 1 Peter 1 and verse 7, because it's your training in time for you to reign with him for all eternity. He has to cause us to be dependent. And as we close this morning, as we close this morning, remember Hebrews 12.1. Look, what, what does it say? Wherefore, lay, laying apart, lay aside what? Every weight. What is every weight? It's me with my will trying to control something. And when I think I can control it, do I need Christ? No. He's constantly bringing us back to the reality of a proper object so that we can function in a proper image. And that always speaks of dependence. We'll we'll depend on him for all eternity, you know, to love us in Ephesians 3 and verse 19, to know the love of God that passes knowledge. There, there will be no, there will be no distractions. There will be no distances experientially. There isn't positionally. There is now, and that's what we're learning, but in heaven we'll still be just as dependent, (laughs) but in a freeness that nothing will ever again disturb or distract, ever again, because we function in that love. That's what he's working into us right now. Because when all else is done away with, in Matthew 24 and verse 35 and Isaiah 40 and verse verse 8, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word... Who, you, who Christ is in you and who you are in him will never pass away. And he's, he's preparing us for a, an eternal fellowship with him that nothing in, in, in heaven will ever disturb or distract in Revelations 2 and verse 17. But the least particle of my will introduces a distance between me and God. Just a little bit. And we're going to close with this in Romans chapter 7. This is, a, this is a Christian. This is a Christian who has forgotten experientially Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5, the much more that we have in Christ. Forgot it. Because we got all intertwined and tripped up by other objects. They began to take all of our focus away from Christ.
And this is the picture, like Job the 29th chapter is with Romans the 7th chapter. We got away from the much mores. We got away from knowing the truth in Romans 6, that where the old man is crucified. We got away from all of that. We began to forget it in this circumstance, in this situation. But no matter what the circumstance or situation is, he's showing us the reality of who he is in us, that he never changes. Even when we do, he never changes. And he's always, in Isaiah 30, verse 18, waiting to be gracious. But here, it is an individual. His object is who? Is it Christ until the 25th verse or himself? It's how I feel. It's how I think. It's this circumstance. It's that circumstance. I failed here. I failed there. All I do is fail. Oh, yeah. Just when I think I've got it made, all of a sudden, boom. <laughs> Self is the occupation here. Self is the occupation. And what do we find there? What do we find? Look, verse 18 of Romans 7. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. I know that in a declarative way. But doesn't that have to be proved with me? And won't the proof of it will be that in my dependence is Christ as my only object and nothing else? Dwells what? Dwells no good thing. What dwells in place of it? Colossians 3 and verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. With all wisdom, that means every circumstance, every single situation, every thought, every emotion. I know in me dwells no good thing, for to will is present with me. Don't you will to do good even when you're not doing good? Don't you will? Don't you will? Of course you do. Of course I do. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, guess what? I find not. Why? It's my own will and operation. For the good that I would, I don't do. But the evil that I wouldn't, God, I do it. Now, if I do that that I wouldn't want to do, and it is no more I that do it, but that sin that dwells in me, I find then a law that I, when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God, and the law of God is Romans 8, 2, and 3. The law of the, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is, has already set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it brought out the weakness of my flesh. What does the law do? Brings out the weakness and keeps telling me you need to perform when you can't. Posted it recently. The mirror, the law is the mirror that tells a little boy with a dirty face, you've got a dirty face, and doesn't give him an object at all. And when we forget Christ as our object, we can do it with emotions that are good or bad based upon the thoughts that are initiated to the emotions. But what do we find? For we find then a law that when I would try to do good with my, the least bit of my will involved, evil's present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. What do we cry? What does the, what is the, the man here cry out? Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to help me in this condition? Is that what it says? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? 
I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's already been done. So then with the mind, I myself, I myself with my own will serve the law, uh, uh, I myself serve the law of God and my own individuality in Christ. But separated from that, but with the flesh, forgetting God, what? The law of sin. The law of sin. The least particle of my will introduces that distance between me and God. And the cross is the measure of that distance that's been gapped, been done away with. He's done away with it and, 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 and has been removed. The cross has, has not only removed me, but it's removed that sin, crucified the old, and removed it all, and that sin has been atoned for, and we've been reconciled. We are reconciled. Are my thoughts and my emotions equal to that reality? The circumstance or the situation will bring it out. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the only one who can take the things of Christ in John 16, 13, 14 and show them unto me. Show me where I'm living in the flesh with ever, never condemning me. <laughs> There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ. And then to show me instantly, instantly who I am. I began to function apart from the yoke. And when I do, when I do, I experience the very weakness that I have. And my weakness becomes my experience and not Christ. Because there's no grace experientially that does away with that does away and fills the weakness in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9. And I don't say he will never take away weakness. You know, that's what we cry out for the most. I hate doing this, God. Please, I hate it. Take away this weakness. That's one thing he will never take away until we go to be with him. Because if we did. We would turn so fast from him, we would never need him again. We would never desire to experience him as our reality and our only object. So as we close, we, when we function in this weakness and in this frailty, God is allowing that to see, to see that the flesh that's in us, that, God, that grace, the grace that he's given us is to live in self-condemnation. Is there any condemnation in Christ in Romans 8.1? In the flesh, yeah, has already been condemned. The feelings, the thoughts that aren't of him. They never measure who we are, of course. But the thing is, we will never know sin. Never. Fully. In, in the way that it leads to weakness. Remember in Hebrews 12, 1, lay aside the weight, and the sin. So if I don't lay aside the weight and trust him, submit my will, it's going to lead to what? The only thing my will can lead to is sin. I start doubting. I start quitting mentally. I'm done. It doesn't make any sense. Things don't make any sense. I was on the mountaintop. Everything was perfect. Now I'm down here. What happened? Why am I down here? The answer is, and God is correcting us experientially. He's correct correcting us, to see sin in his presence, to see how hideous it is, but never to the point of condemning us, but, but preparing us to see how important it is for us in our weakness to submit our will so that we don't experience the hideous effects of sin in a will that hasn't been submitted. And so we live... We're to live 
in, in self-condemnation of the flesh, never in who we are in Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 31 and 32. Even Now, when I don't do it, when I don't live in proper self-condemnation of the flesh, then God in his grace, he brings in the, the first step of his love when I'm not functioning in that love is chastisement to separate us in Hebrews 4 and verse 12. And he has the, and when we get back to him experientially, what does he want to do? When the prodigal came home, when he was in his rags, his father was kissing him on his neck. We see that in Luke, the 15th chapter. I believe it's 11, uh, 15 and 11 to 32. But when we see that, and he's coming back, he's got his own thoughts of his failure and how long he's been away from the Father. He comes back and he starts forming his thoughts about his Father that were based upon himself. And were they his Father's thoughts? Now, he, what was the father doing? Just waiting to be gracious, to put the robe on, the ring, the, the, the turban, the, the miter, and to have a celebration because this, my son, was lost experientially. But now he's found. And the father kisses the neck, the will that's submitted to him. So he's dealing with these roots in us. He deals with the roots that are in us that have to do with willfulness, the areas where we even ignorantly resist him because we're so occupied with other things. And so he stops us because we can see, he wants us to see that's what sin is and it's true distance from God. And you know how he measured it? You know, we know this, don't we? How sin has caused such agony in us, don't we, in measure? Well, who measured it? like we never could. And that was Jesus Christ on Calvary. All our sin was put on him. And it caused distance between him and God, didn't it? Because he was paying for something you and I never could. And so there was great distance. And that's, that's, the, that's God saying, this is, this is. See, see the definition of sin? It brought intense agony. But are our sins dealt with and paid for? He suffers with us. He suffers with us. He intercedes for us. That's the picture that we need to have in our minds. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. We have a comforter in us on the earth, the Holy Spirit, who takes the things of Christ, shows them unto us. We have Christ as our intercessor in Romans 8.34 and Hebrews 7.25 and in Hebrews 9.26. He's interceding for us. He knows he knows before we fail what could lead to it instantly. He doesn't wait for us to sin before he intercedes. He's already interceding for us. He's already preparing the way back for him, back to him. Because he knows what the he knows like no other human being could ever know, the agony of sin and the agony of the distance and the darkness between him and his father that he cried out. In Psalm 22 and verse 1, and in Matthew 27, verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God had to forsake him because he will never forsake us in Joshua 1, 5, ever. But we're, on, we're in the school of affliction and learning. It's the school of the comfort of his love. And so that unutterable agony of the cross 
that dealt with all the evil and hideousness of the sins that we are no longer. We are no longer those. And he wants us now not to dwell on the failure, not to dwell on the distance, but get back in his presence and dwell on the mercy that has met us, delivered us, and will continue to do so because we have a great high priest, Jesus, who's passed into the heavens to intercede for us in Hebrews 4.14 and that we can come instantly to the throne of grace. Why? We don't have to wait. What causes us to wait is our own will not being submitted. But we can come to the throne of grace to find mercy right in the nick of time. So Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy that has done so much. Thank you that mercy is you and I because of Christ, not receiving what we deserve to get. You, you subtracted from us what we should have got and added it to Jesus Christ on Calvary. And then out of that comes a life that is nothing but grace. And grace is God giving us things that we don't deserve. Mercy is withholding what we deserve to get. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve to get. And you're teaching us this lesson, God. The only way we could learn this is the plan, the circumstance, and the situation that we're in that is absolutely no accident, predetermined in eternity by love that flows from nothing but wisdom. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.